you'll love it. We did a Teague talk and walk with uh, Matt um, Marquis and Matt and Adam Marquis uh, at their Wayfair on the beach in Pacific Beach, which oh, is nice. Pretty- that that's nice. where I am right now. That's my that's my surfing, my surfer dude. Is is that you? Yeah, of course that's me, John. Can't you they tell? Got turn, they got that turned around quick. I like that. <laughs> Hi, John Stanner. Did you want to put a jacket on, or did I make you take it off because I'm going to pull I'm over? Is that what happened? I brought one, you know, dressed for the job you're after, not the one you have. So, but, but I left it. I didn't want to make you feel underdressed to you. You're so, you're so thoughtful. Very. Thank you. Thank you're you. Thoughtful. Are, are you not already at the top of the job stack right now? CEO, public graduated company? You know, sometimes it feels like it. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Is this job everything you expected when Dan Hansen sold it to you? Or it was a total lie? Did he lie? Oh, it was all, it was all lies. Dan, yeah. Dan gave me the old bait and switch, you know? Um, no, it's been, look, it's been a, it's been a wonderful run. It's been a really interesting time to, to transition. You know, I, when I, when I met Dan and, you know, decided to come down here, like this was part of the plan. Um, you know, the part that wasn't part of the plan was the pandemic and everything that has kind of transpired, um, you know, since then. So it hasn't been maybe the straight line that we envisioned it, but um, this was, this was part of the original plan. <laughs> Yeah, and then he yeah until he abandoned you, dropped the keys, and ran when a pandemic. Yeah. The times good, got good, tough. Dan Hansen got going. <laughs> now he's been a wonderful mentor for me. Uh agreed, and he he's a great guy. Did a great job getting the company to where it was. Um, so listen, thanks for joining me. You're a good friend, uh, and I really want to dive into the nuances of your latest earnings call. Yeah, good. Yeah, that makes that makes one of us. <laughs> uh all right so i I do i want obviously i the people part of this industry that we that we're in that's why i'm having you on so we want to know who is john stanner and how did he get to where he is today so give me back indiana boy purdue boilermaker like start from the beginning yeah that's that's right well first of all thanks for having me this is fun i've I've watched a lot of these um never thought that i was the material that you were after so i'm flattered to to be here um we've it's been great getting to know you and your team and you guys do a wonderful job so i'm i'm excited to do this um this is this is really fun um yeah i think you you hit on it right like i i didn't know the first thing about hotels um i wound up in this business you know very much by by chance i, I grew up in this Tiny little town, one stoplight, mostly Amish town in Indiana. Um, my dad owned a, a, a small real estate agency and insurance company, and and I figured I'd always go back and and work there. Um, that was that was the plan. I went to school at Purdue. I loved it, and decided when I graduated that um, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I I thought it'd be fun to live in a city for a couple of years. So uh, I took a job doing investment banking. Um, I didn't know the first thing about investment banking. It sounded really cool and glamorous, so I did it, and I went. To New York for a little while and lived in Chicago. Um, and I, I didn't know the first thing about hotels. I never had any interest in, in the business. And I randomly got, you know, kind of one of those friend of a friend things. I got um, put in touch with uh, a company called Strategic Hotels that had just gone public. Um, they were in the process of building out, you know, what ended up being, you know, probably is, is high quality of collection of luxury hotels that's ever been assembled, at least in the public markets at the time. 
Um, and I remember going to the interview for this job um, and I sat down with the CFO and he's like, look, we, we need somebody that can come in and build Excel models and PowerPoint presentations and write board memos. And I, I remember saying, look, I don't, I don't know the first thing about hotels. And he goes, it doesn't matter. He's like, you, he's like, you've been working hundred hours a week. He's like, I'm going to work you 80. Um, and you're going to feel like you're on vacation. And, um, and I was like, yeah, it sounds, I don't know what I'm going to do with all my free time, but that sounds good. I'll, I'll try that. And, um, you know, so I started, I started working there and I didn't intend to, but I kind of fell in love with the business. Um, I've always really liked real estate. Um, I love the hospitality and travel world generally. Um, and it was a really fun period of time. We were buying and selling hotels. We were raising capital. We were doing all the, the fun part of being a public company. And again, we assembled what was really an irreplaceable hotel. Um, at some point, I think my dad got sick of waiting on me to come back and run the family business and he sold it. And I kind of had this uh oh moment of like, I guess I better, you know, really figure this out because I've lost my optionality and now I need to figure out how to be a hotel guy. And so um, that's how I got into the business and it was fun. And I've seen, you know, a, I got really lucky uh, and ha I had a bunch of really great mentors and, um, you know, a guy named Lawrence Geller who's, who founded and ran Strategic for a long period of time. Um, he drugged me around to every hotel and every investor meeting and every banker meeting and all the meetings with, you know, our partners who were the who's who of the Wall Street um, private equity real estate crowd. Um, and it was just an incredibly fulfilling, wonderful background for me. And, and as I said, I, I fell in love with hospitality and the, the hotel business for better or for worse. Um, and have, have been in the world ever since. So I love these and the mentors are huge. Uh, and I'm sad you didn't join your father's real estate company. Not <laughs> yeah, me too. Us, not all I of us can carry that dream. I think he's probably happy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so give, tell me, how'd you meet Dan? When did you meet Dan? And give me that, uh, I don't know, that courtship of Dan trying to bring you over. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a funny story. I met him, gosh, it's probably been 15 years ago now. We were we were both standing in line waiting for a taxi um, right outside the Waldorf Astoria in New York. And um, he leaned over to me and said, hey, you want to share a ride to LaGuardia? And I said, sure. Um, and I didn't know who he was and he didn't. I should have known who he was. Um, it was the the CEO of a publicly traded lodging read. I was, you know, the, the guy schlepping the pitch books back and forth to investor meetings um, in New York. And we shared a cab. Uh, we hit it off very quickly. Um, you know, I grew very fond of of him and what he was building down at Summit, um, and we just kind of stayed in touch for a number of years. He actually, you know, offered me a job at one point, and I and I said no. I, I felt like I had was kind of the dog that caught the car at, at Strategic at that point in time uh, when we had gone through a couple iterations of of ownership change after Blackstone took us private, and then we sold to to Anbang, and um, it just didn't feel like the right time, and and everything changed. Over over the course of a couple of years. And um, the timing of it all was really fortuitous. You know, Dan was in the process of putting a succession plan in place um, for our, our, my predecessor at the, as the CFO at the time. Um, and then ultimately for him to transition to the next phase of, of his career. And so um, I joined initially as the chief investment officer. Um, I transitioned over about a year or two year period to the chief financial officer and then did that for, you know, three or four years before again, 
we ultimately effectuated, um, you know, Dan's transition to the executive chairman and, and me as to the CEO. And so, um, look, again, a lot of world stuff happened in that period of time, like nothing that we, the plan was put in place, um, scrapped, redrawn, you know, four or five times in, in that process. But we ultimately kind of wound up where we ultimately in, intended it to, to be. Um, and it was fun. Again, Dan has been, you know, such a great mentor for me over the years. He, he built the foundation of what's been built um, at Summit. You know, he deserves an enormous amount of, of credit for. And I think, you know, part of what made Summit successful you know, following the IPO was this went from really a non-institutional asset class into a, a really, really highly regarded institutional asset class, particularly in the, in the public markets. And um, again, he was as, as much of a trailblazer through that process as anybody. Yeah. I mean, ha you know, sorry, maybe I'm going to go to the nuances. Start with Dan, right? I mean, they were in South Dakota, Fargo, and trying to- yeah. uh, massive hotel company and we joked i was like you're the largest company no one's ever heard of <laughs> i think i think that's right everybody was kind of everywhere and it ended up being this roll up i think even dan would tell you like really had no business being a public company when it went public but you know liquidity is liquidity and they needed to find it you know somewhere somehow and so um you know that i you know dan was actually down in houston there were people in sioux falls there was people in in charlotte um, it, people were everywhere. And I think, you know, one of the, the more prescient things Dan did was he said, we probably need to find a place that we can get people to, to move to. So he picked Austin. Um, I think that's pretty good. I, I don't think I could have convinced my wife to move to Sioux Falls. So I probably wouldn't be here if the Austin move, um, you know, didn't happen. And um, again, like he, he built, you know, what was a really great company. And I think what, you know, the legacy that he's built has been like, this is a real boots on the ground, you know, company, like we're, we're an operating company. We were a manager of hotels, a developer of hotels pre-IPO. Um, we sold the management company as part of the IPO to avoid kind of that conflict. Um, and we don't do as much development as we used to do, but we've retained that expertise in-house. And that, you know, that along with being a real transaction-oriented business is, has really provided the foundation of, of what has been built here at Summit. We've got 101 hotels today. Um, we went public in 2011 with, with 65 hotels. We have three of them left. Um, you know, we've turned over almost the entire portfolio uh, in the in the 12 years of being public. And, you know, as you know, we took a couple of years of break during the pandemic of doing a lot of deals. So um, it's been, uh, again, uh, it's been a wonderful background. Again, that foundation that has been built, that legacy continues to carry on and, and provides a little bit of the underpinning of how we think about creating value here. Give me, give me some of the nuances of, of sort of strategic investment as a public company versus maybe a private company. And where I'm leading you to is having to be higher rev par and newer, shinier boxes in, you know, urban markets or just bigger markets rather than the DNA of Summit was cash flowing secondary tertiary markets. And we can make a, a really good living and earn a lot of income in these secondary tertiary markets. But that's yeah. Yeah, you know, look, I, I think that we've what we've always really believed in is you build the business at the unit level, economic level, right? Like we need the risk adjusted returns of our business to provide the right returns for shareholders. And I think that's what select service broadly gets right relative to, to full service, higher yields, lower capital requirements, higher margins, um, just better overall risk adjusted returns. And so, um, I, again, I think if you go back 
10 or 15 years, the public markets weren't ready for um, a company that owned assets outside of the top 5, 10, 15, even 25 markets. Um, you know, where we've had a lot of success hasn't been in New York and Washington, D.C. It's been in markets like Boulder, Colorado, and Phoenix, and Tucson, and Tampa. And they're not necessarily secondary or tertiary markets, but they're not necessarily gateway, highest barrier to entry, really low cap rate markets. And so um, I think it's the combination of being able to come in and support a higher yield, um, support things that re that that take um, less capital, um, and just generally provide better overall risk-adjusted returns has been a little bit of what's made this business more palatable and more investable from the public company markets. Um, I, we're not afraid of secondary and tertiary markets. I think that where we're focused on is what's the hold period IRR look like? And if I can generate the right returns over that hold period, ultimately that's going to translate into creating value for, for shareholders. That, that's been the underpinning of what we've done. Um, we've done it in a wrapper, again, that is a real operating real estate oriented wrapper. And so we don't have a lot of prototypical, um, you know, you see the same Hampton inbox along the side of the road. There's nothing wrong with that business. It just hasn't been what we've done. If you come down and you walk through our Hampton Inn in Austin, um, you'll see guitars on the wall and it looks and feels um, like a hotel that should be in Austin. It doesn't necessarily look like a Hampton Inn. Um, it's a wonderful asset and we love being part of the Hilton program and it's a great brand, uh, but it truly is a customized, non-prototypical type of offering. And so that's really what proliferates our portfolio. We feel like we've carved out a niche in the portfolio that's the highest quality select service um, uh, portfolio within the overall public uh, lodging space. Do you think that's where the industry's headed? I think if you look at where, you know, a lot of the really smart capital in the world, um, X Summit is putting capital, you know, you look at where Blackstone invests and you look at where Starwood invests and you look at where they're allocating capital, um, you know, it's by and large around premium, high quality select service um, and some resort offerings, um, you know, really high end, high buried entry resort type locations. Um, I, I do think that, again, I, I come from a luxury full service background and I love that business and I and I miss that business. M my wife really misses that job. <laughs> um, the perks were great. Um, but I think when I'm really objective about how you create returns in this model, um, I think you have, particularly when you look at where trends are going, whether it's guest preference trends, where the labor market's going, um, I just think the risk adjusted unit level economics of our business provide better longer term returns than you get in in you know other parts of the business other right, segments me, of the business give me give me some sort of national trends and how you guys are investing accordingly and i'm talking you know all the stuff leisure right whether it's drive to or fly to i'm talking office urban office return how's that affecting you guys uh, yeah, you know, look, I think we I think we identified, you know, even pre-COVID that we thought that the leisure growth profile had a better growth profile longer term than non-leisure. And I think that had played out. I think that you you just have seen you know, business transient travel in particular has been on kind of the slow upward trajectory. And I think we're a believer in the, the bigger like services travel is stealing wallet share, right? Like I think we're stealing wallet share from good spending. Um, you saw that get exacerbated incredibly following COVID where you've had all these big demand normalization or, uh, you know, non-normal demand patterns happening that are now reverting back to more normal demand patterns. And that's created some up and ups and downs in how we think about 
demand. But I think big picture broadly, um, we were a believer that um, over longer periods of time, there was going to be better uh, better demographic trends around uh, leisure than there was around pure business travel. Um, and we've tried to orient. Uh, what we haven't chased is what got so hot last year, and I think probably got mispriced, which was drive to domestic leisure resorts. Um, you know, the pricing of that kind of product um, went, you know, crazy high. We didn't necessarily chase that. Where we found pockets were um, smaller leisure-oriented markets, markets like Steamboat Colorado, Tucson, Arizona, which are predominantly leisure-driven markets, but aren't the coast of California or the southeast coast of, of Florida. And so the pricing was much more attractive. Um, it still held up to, it still benefited from that overall leisure trend, but we just got it at a much more attractive basis. Um, and I think where we see better growth generally has been in the Sunbelt. If you look at our transaction activity over, you know, post-COVID, we've done, you know, a billion dollars plus of, of acquisitions. A hundred percent of them have either been in the Sunbelt or in mountain towns. Um, and that's where we just see, we see better people um, migration patterns. We see better corporate relocation trends in some of these markets. So we made a big bet in Dallas. We made bets all across Texas and we see it. It's in our backyard, uh, but we see the people moving here. We see the businesses relocating here. We see that development activity and how it ultimately is going to translate into to better hotel demand. Um, we haven't given up on urban markets, you know, quite to the contrary. I think that there's going to be um, some interesting opportunities. There have been interesting opportunities. I think there will be more more of those opportunities um, over time. Um, it's just been on a different recovery trajectory. And look, urban is urban markets are where all the growth was, particularly in the second quarter, as you've seen this normalization of demand patterns, particularly on the leisure side, um, with, with really difficult comps to last year. How is climate change impacting your investment strategy? And what I mean by that Ooh. is it's super hot on the Southwest, there's hurricanes in Florida. Is that impacting you at all? Or is that just one minor nugget? We can't look at that. But it's you're, look, you have to be mindful of it. Like I think where it's manifested itself in it is in your ability and the cost of insurance premiums. Right. Um, you know, and the cost of our insurance premiums portfolio wide, we're up forty percent this year. And as frustrating as that was, um, it's better than I've heard most of our peers do. And that increase is driven by and large by catastrophic coverage. Um, you know, in certain markets, and that's driven for us. It's Houston, New Orleans, Miami, and the rest of Florida, where you've seen, you know, um, more and more hurricane activity over the over the last several years. You've got, you know, really concerningly high water temperatures, um, you know, in the Gulf and in and around Florida today. And so it's absolutely a risk. Um, doesn't mean we don't want to buy in those markets or wouldn't buy in those markets, but you have to underwrite the risk appropriately. One, you have to know that it's it's generally a risk that you're going to have an event. And two, um, the cost of your, it drives your cost of your insurance up, up, you know, significantly. And so we're, we're mindful of those things when we underwrite in those markets. I wouldn't say that we would redline those markets. In fact, look, there's good demand growth in a lot of those markets that I just mentioned. Yeah, that's where people are moving back to your demographics. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about your sort of high profile last year. You did the deal with Mayhul and Newcrest Image. Uh, you glad you did that? How's that working out? 
Yeah, we look, we are glad we did it. Um, look, it's a great portfolio. Um, I think the structuring of the deal was 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 really astute. The, you know, we did it on a leverage neutral basis. You know, Mahul took, you know, back a significant portion of, of our stock. Um, he sits on our board now. He's a wonderful asset for us. Yeah. Um, you know, I think fundamentally we look at it like everything else. We felt like we could buy high quality real estate in good markets at an attractive basis. Um, and it's been some heavy lifting. You know, you went through a management change on on every single asset we went through, you know, a really, you know, painstaking process to make sure we had cluster sales processes in place. Um, we've changed out some of the management teams at the portfolio. We're really now starting to see, you know, the benefits of, of those efforts. That portfolio grew rev power by 15% in the second quarter. EBITDA was up, you know, over 20% year over year. Our margins expanded over 250 basis points. And so you're doing that against a setting where, you know, the, the, the industry grew 3% in the quarter um three and a half percent in the quarter so you were really seeing significantly outsized growth in that portfolio and would expect that to continue again i think a lot of that some of those assets were new um they they hadn't really stabilized they hadn't fully ramped up you know from you know leading into the pandemic and so um, we think the growth profile of of that portfolio is is really tremendous and i think you know when we look back on that deal in three four or five years we'll be awfully glad that that we did the transaction yeah, and I'm putting words in your mouth, but maybe it's a timing thing, right? You did it then when sort of the market was hot and you could do a big deal. What was that? 27 assets, 800 and something million dollars. Yeah. Uh, and today I'm guessing you got to be, because it's the opposite, now you got to be a little more strategic, a little more thoughtful, slower pace. Is that accurate? Yeah, we... Yeah, we, look, we've certainly, you know, we, we've we've bought, we've only bought two hotels this year. They were they were highly strategic assets. You know, they were located ne next to existing assets they own, where we thought we could create some synergies with their ownership. They were high yielding assets. We're as, and I'm sure we'll talk about this. We're as yield sensitive as we've ever been as an underwriter, um, given the rate environment and some of the uncertainty in the in the macro. But um, look, these type of portfolios just don't come around, you know, all that often, especially of this quality. Um, one of the other things we really liked about the portfolio was it was new. And so we didn't step into a bunch of deferred capital needs that I think are going to proliferate the industry over the next two or three years and create additional opportunities for us. Um, and we have to manage our own CapEx spending program. You know, like everybody else, we went a year or so during the, the, the depths of the pandemic and didn't invest capital the way that we normally would. And so to step into a portfolio that was new, mostly renovated and ready to go was a, a real advantage for us. Let's sort of wrap up. One, give me your vision for what you think our industry is going. And then I'm going to ask you questions about you as a leader. Yeah, you know, look, we're in an interesting time. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you haven't dug too deep into the, all the, what was a what was a very trying second quarter earnings cycle for for everybody. Like we're we're in a unique period of time, and it's funny. I I, I watch these segments fairly routinely, and and even as I was getting ready for this, I went back and watched a couple of them from earlier in the year, and it's very interesting to see how you know all the stuff that we projected um, at the beginning of the year, like some of it's held and some of it hasn't. And I think that um, I think what the the industry broadly is struggling with, and I know this is true of public company investors, is just how to take, just how to get your arms around what this demand normalization process looks like, right? You know, we, we knew leisure was really good last year. I don't think we knew how good it really was, particularly in a context of not cleaning rooms and not operating food and beverage outlets. Like that, that was a good combination of having price inelastic leisure demand um, and not having to provide a lot of the amenities and services that, that we typically do. That's obviously reversed. And I think you've seen, if nothing else, you've seen a real net net 
headwind in the second and third quarter from from international travel. You know, there's a lot more outbound and a lot less inbound. And so, you know, I think some of that's going to normalize again as we get into next year. I think we're still in this slow grind higher on the business transient side. Um, I don't think we've peaked, um, but it certainly hasn't been this kind of V-shaped recovery that we saw on the leisure side. And so I do think there's another leg up on the BT side. I think you're going to see another leg up around return to office. Um, you know, you've seen even some of the, the, the Bay Area tech companies, Zoom did it last week, Meta, um, Amazon, they've all started calling people back into the office, maybe not five days a week, but some. Um, and I think you're seeing kind of normalizations of, of some of these patterns that will net net be beneficial to us. Um, look, I think our business, and I could make this a broader statement for commercial real estate as a whole, I think we're all trying to, to understand what our world looks like when, when interest rates are zero, you know, and you've gone from a fed funds rate that was zero to a fed funds rate. That's five and a half in uh, 16, 17 months. Um, I think we're all coming, you know, coming to grips with how do we price assets and how do we operate in an environment where it costs me seven, eight percent to go out and, and finance a hotel? And what does that mean for for cap rates in our business? What's that mean for transaction volumes in, in your business? And so um, it's a it's a highly, highly interesting time. I actually do think that we're in a fairly stable demand environment. Um, and I think that, you know, when we started the year out and we have to give, you know, public guidance on earnings and we love that, um, you know, we tried to we tried to bracket a range that said the low end of our range was going to take into account real economic softness. Um, and I think, you know, eight months into the year, what we've seen is I think everybody's started to triangulate around the lower ends of these guidance ranges, and we're not in a recession. Um, and, you know, the chorus of people saying there's going to be some form of soft landing is becoming, you know, more and more the majority uh, than it was at the beginning of the year. But there's still operating pressure in this business because demand really has normalized. And I don't think we know enough yet to know whether that creates a tailwind for next year, where we're going to see, you know, better domestic leisure travel in, in 24 than we did in 23. We know we've reset pricing in a lot of, in a lot of markets. And I think of all of the things, you know, what we've really got, when I look out longer term of our business, what gets me really excited about the business is there's no supply growth for four or five years. I think we continue to steal, share. Um, and I think that you're going to continue to see some of this normalization of, of demand patterns that make, you know, a pretty attractive business. I do think the labor market will get better. It's been, you know, probably the number one um, operating challenge that we've had uh, for, you know, 24 months now. Um, but I do think you'll start to see you know, the conditions in that market ease a little bit. And we need to get back to a period where, you know, three and a half percent rev par growth in this business creates, you know, margin expansion, not contraction. And, and we're just not in it today because of the uniqueness of, of how this recovery has unfolded. How, how tough is it to be a leader in this in this world? I mean, it's you, again, you had some challenging times. You got to be an internal optimist to, <laughs> to, to yeah. keep everybody moving forward. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, look, I think I married the, the quintessential optimist and I had a, you know, a friend, I think whose dad who, who once told me like, it doesn't cost extra to be optimistic. And um, like, as silly as that is, you have had to embrace that. It's certainly tested, you know, your, your resiliency characteristics um, over the last couple of years. Um, look, again, I look, we love our business. And I do think 
the long-term dynamics, as I just mentioned, of this business are, are really good. I think you've got to be very careful not to extrapolate um, things from one quarter to the next. And, um, you know, look, the, the quarter relative to expectations um, wasn't what we or any of our peers wanted it to be. Um, I, I do think the business is still um, on, on a good, positive trend. Um, our, our business is known for its cyclicality and the cyclicality and the volatility of, of demand. Um, long-term patterns are favorable. And we've never had in my in, in my frame of reference, we've never had a window like I think we're going to have over the next four or five years where you have less supply growth. You know, I think you're going to have supply growth in this business run half of its normal uh, rate. And it has for the last two years. And I think the outlook for the next three or four years is, is equally good. You know, you combine that with this propensity to consume travel and particularly a younger demographic that really prioritizes travel as um, something they want to spend discretionary money on. Um, it bodes really well for our business. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make you feel good, you know, right, right after difficult earnings cycles, but um, I, there's a lot to really like longer term about this industry and the business. Listen, anecdotally, we're as busy as we've ever been, which is fine. It's hard. It's really, really, really hard to get deals done. Um, uh, and you're right, the lower end, the local guy that signs personally with his local bank, signs recourse, those are the deals getting done. But we're as busy as we've been in a long time. So yeah. fingers crossed Good. Good. the transactions are picking up. Yeah, we hope so. We hope so, too. And I do think they will. Like, I think one, it's just been a long time. This is a long time to go without much transaction activity. Um, but there's, you know, there's real refinancing issues to address. There's real capital issues to address. And I think yeah, it's not easy um, decision either way. It's not easy. Yeah, and look, I, I don't I don't think you necessarily need to, to expect distress. But I think when, you know, your base rate goes up, you know, 500 basis points, like stuff's going to break. And um, it may not be distressed, but it may be more of a forced sale than it was before. And so I just think it's going to facilitate more transaction activity over, over time. And I think there was this push and pull around, gosh, like our rate's going to come down. How quickly is the curve going to normalize? And, you know, I think we're all, again, getting um, our arms around a higher for longer interest rate regime, what that means for values and, and cap rates. And I think once you get a little bit more certainty on, on kind of the monetary and the macro side, you know, the conditions are ripe for, for more transactions. I think it's coming. All right, John, this is fantastic. You're a good friend. Uh, awesome. I appreciate your time. Same. Thanks for letting me pick on you, poke the questions. Uh, I can't wait to see you soon. Enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. I, I really Great. enjoyed Let's, it. When do I get to beat you in golf next? Any, whenever you're ready. It, it's, you know, we're, we're in a heat dome here, so maybe we maybe we do it in the fall. We should. <laughs> so we good, call. good point. Let's good do point. that. All right. Thanks, sir. All right. Thank Bye. you, T. Talk soon. Bye. Bye.